Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And as always, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Now, today's episode is one that I've been excited about for a long time. I've actually been trying to nail down these two guests for a number of months, and I'm so glad that it happened right now. The timing is absolutely perfect. This conversation is all about how to get your business ready to sell and ultimately what the transition process is like when you sell your business to someone else within your company. And the two guests that I have on here, Daniel Hammer and Mike Duvall, have just a really cool story. Mike was a business owner for about 40 years before he ended up selling his company to Daniel Hammer, who'd been working for him for a number of years. And as I talk with businesses around the country, this is one of the most common topics that comes up. And I know right now our industry is at a turning point where we've got a lot of folks that are in their late 50s and early 60s that started these amazing businesses and they've been running them well for a number of years. But now they're at the point of saying, hey, I'm going to be getting out sometime soon and I got to figure out a transition plan. So this conversation is going to be immensely helpful as you sort out that process because we're going to be diving deep into their real life experience. How did Mike prepare to get the business ready to be sold? What was Daniel thinking about as he considered buying a business? What do you do as far as seeking legal counsel? How do you negotiate a price? We're going to dive into all these questions in this interview and my hope is that whether you're the person that's selling a business or whether you're someone coming up saying, hey, I think I could buy a business, this conversation is going to start to give you a roadmap. There's so much stuff to think about, right? I mean, how do you identify the person or the organization that's going to buy your business? How long does it take once you start that process? You know, these steps are something that you don't take lightly. And Companies need to be very intentional with it. So it was really cool to get to talk to Daniel and Mike just very candidly about what this journey was like for both of them. So with that in mind, I want to jump straight to the interview. We'll circle back at the end and talk about this because there's a lot of things I want to cover. But before we do that, you guys need to hear this conversation. Joining me from Seattle, Washington, are two guests I've been really excited to have on the show for a long time. I'm joined by Mike Duvall and Daniel Hammer. Mike started a business called Sutter Home and Hearth and has since sold that business to Daniel Hammer. And I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Guys, thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Tim, good to be here. Yeah. Well, Mike, I want to talk to you since... I've seen what Sutter is now. Can you talk about what, what's the journey been like of starting a business and seeing the entire evolution of, of starting it, it becomes a success, and ultimately you end up selling it and seeing it continue as a legacy? Well, I have to say, at this point in time, I've considered it a very rewarding journey. Um, however, like any journey, it's never a smooth road. And it's been it was a long road because it started... Um, in 1979. And at that time, we were strictly a wood stove company. That's all we did. We didn't do anything related to fireplaces like accessories or anything like that. We were really hardcore, all about energy efficiency, and um, really thought, you know, I'd say starting started out pretty altruistically regarding what we were doing and how we were bringing products to the market and how we were serving people. And that ethos, fortunately, stuck with us for 
the life of our business and continues now, fortunately, with Daniel. But um, I guess in retrospect, I would say um, I'd have to quote, you know, the Grateful Dead, what a long, strange trip it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe it. And, uh, you know, I, I just think it, it's got to be interesting to see something that you've built get passed on to somebody else. I feel like there's got to be all kinds of emotions that, that come with that. Like there's got to be some ego of like, Hey, I built this thing and it's awesome. But you also, in order for it to be successful, you, you kind of got to let go of it a little bit. Um, I'd imagine there's a, there's a big mix of emotions there. There are, there are for sure. And, and, but I would say once again, I just want to reiterate that I, I couldn't be more pleased with the way things turned out. Um, you know, considering selling the business is something that I think most business owners should do well before they're ready to sell, obviously. And um, I had the privilege of being involved in a dealer group for years, actually one of the founding members of a dealer group. So I, I had the benefit of seeing some of my peers go through this process and, and also having very candid discussions with some of my peers about how this process works and what some of the alternatives were. So I had a lot of, um, should I say, uh, grounding in, in what can happen and how things can work and different options and, and really started examining them a long time ago, long before I was ready to sell the business. And in fact, to that point, I had a, a buyer who was sort of, no, I would say sort of, he engaged me to, to buy my business several years before I was ready to sell it. So that intensified my um, examination of exactly what I wanted and how I wanted to do it and you know who the likely candidates were and how this might go down. Because I'll confess, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, there, there was a point where I thought, well, you know what? I've got a really good profitable business here. If, if I can't sell it, um, I'll liquidate it and I'll just take the money and run. And, uh, and I'm glad it didn't come to that. And I'm glad I got beyond that. But there was a time when I considered that a, a viable alternative. And I did see some business people do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. I know uh, I'm down in Portland, Oregon. And over the last five years, we've seen that happen with multiple hearth businesses of just the door shut, the inventory is liquidated, and, and that's that. But I think it's really special to be able to make the transition. I think it's a win. It's obviously a win-win. It's a win for you, and it's a win for, for you know Daniel, in this case, coming in to take it over as well. Certainly. I, I believe so. And um, you know, in terms of considering what, you know, considerations that you make, you know, part of it for me was the legacy uh, because when you pour your heart and soul into something for that long, you do build your ego around it a little bit. And uh, it is a little hard at times to, to back away and say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I did all this. Why would I now do this? Right. Or a B, <laughs> but um, uh, you know, it takes some soul searching and it also the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of experience that you see what some of these other companies did and what some other businesses went through you know, I, I would say off the top of my head that probably 80% of the businesses in, in our industry are family owned and they anticipate some, uh, you know, inheritance for the children to take over the business. And I know that's maybe idealistic in some worlds, but in small business, that's a pretty common denominator, I think. And, uh, 
we were always, uh, well, from just after we became a business, we incorporated. So we were a C corporation. We never had family working for us. And um, so there was no risk of nepotism. Yeah. And, and I always wanted to stay away from that. But you do see some of these family businesses that um, it is, you know, there is money, they're making good money, but it's kind of hard to see how they're doing it all. And some of it is with, you know, just family ties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to shift to Daniel and Daniel, I'm going to ask you. So, so we're going to, we're going to kind of play this conversation out from both Mike's side and your side, but what was your journey to, to even getting into the industry to the point where you could even fathom buying a business? Well, you know, I started in this industry in 2000, at 2000, like legitimately. I mean, before that I was, you know, working under the table here and there installing stoves. And um, my family's been kind of involved in the hearth industry through my brother um, and, I, and I worked with him and uh, his company for uh, 10 years, started out as a warehouse guy and then was an installer and um, did, uh, and then got into sales and sales management and then became branch manager. And, uh, you know, by the end of my time at uh, the company I worked at before, um, I was, you know, a senior manager running my own store, including the installation department and the inventory and, um, you know, doing a lot of other things for the other four stores that uh, were a part of that company at that time. Fast forward to uh, making the transition from, you know, my old company to Sutter. I was, I don't know, it's 2011 or so. I actually had met John Miner uh, as Mike Duvall's partner a couple years before that, just randomly. I was down in, I lived, I've lived in Seattle for, well, a long time now. I moved to Seattle um, in the early 2000s and I actually worked at a company that was out of the city. And uh, so I'd commuted 15 miles, 20 miles every day to get down to my, my old company, but I actually lived in Seattle and I was, uh, doing some work where I was in Ballard and I walked into Sutter Home and Hearth down on Ballard Avenue. I didn't even know they were there. This is like 2008 or 2009 and uh, went in there and kind of identified myself as working for a hearth company and saying, Hey, you know, I'm not here to, I'm not a competitor. I just you know, want to say hi. And um, you know, please don't send my head in a box back to my bosses. Um, I'm just here to, you know, take a look at your operation. I know you're here. And uh, the guy at the counter, I'm pretty sure it was Van Thorfinson who still works here. I said, yeah, no problem. You know, how you doing? And, and I went into the, to the next part of the showroom and there was a guy stocking the shelves and he struck up a conversation with me and it turned out it was John Minor, which is for those who know John Minor, it's actually not surprising that he was stocking shelves. Um, and uh, we had a good conversation and a couple of years later, I called him up and he remembered me and I decided to go have an interview and um, moved over to Sutter in 2011. And, you know, at that point in my career, um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay in the industry. In fact, I was pretty sure I didn't. Um, and I worked for John and Mike uh, for probably a year, maybe a year and a half um, before kind of started getting the itch that it just wasn't for me anymore. And I was ready to leave the industry. Um, and I almost uh, took a job as a uh, general manager for another company uh, that does a completely different uh, trade down in uh, uh, Santa Barbara. And I was going to go work for kind of a high-end audio company, which is kind of a similar type of business, right? It's especially yeah. retail and focuses on service and, and high, you know, technically demanding goods. And it just seemed like it was time for a change. And John and Mike and I sat down and I went and told them that that was my thought. And I wasn't really going in there to negotiate. I was really just telling them that, Hey, you know, I've made this decision and I really respect you guys. I really like you a lot. And you've taught me a lot of things, even in the short time I've been here that I didn't learn in my prior uh, job, but I think it's time for me to make a move. And John and Mike really wanted at that time, time to give me an opportunity to stay. Um, and, you know, we got to, gotten into some negotiations and I, you know, they gave me a lot to think about. Um, of course we, you know, talked about salary. We talked about what's the long term. Um, and 
really what it ended up being for me is that, you know, once John and Mike were, and I were able to get to this next step of relationship where they recognize, well, we don't want to lose this guy. And I started recognizing, you know, hey, I'm going to go work for a company that is owned by two people who the folks down in Santa Barbara that they're looking to me to be kind of a, a savior that I'm not, you know, because I'm bringing a, a four-year business degree and they think that that's like a some kind of silver bullet. And I recognized at that moment that, you know, moving to California and doing this transition would be exciting and I'd probably be successful at it. But I had a lot more to learn just staying with John and Mike. And yeah. that's kind of what made me stay more than anything else is that I recognized that, you know, these guys were excellent. They're excellent business owners. They were good bosses. Um, and it was going to take a long time for me to learn even half of what they had to teach me. Um, and that's the thing that kept me there. And, you know, and then the rest of it kind of progressed naturally after that. I mean, once I decided to stay and, you know, stay with Sutter and commit to, you know, learning from them as best I can and commit to, you know, trying to run the company as best I can uh, under their tutelage, um, you know, we just kind of one thing led to another. And, and we kind of always knew from that point forward that that was kind of going to be the plan. Um, and then, you know, every, every year the plan kind of solidified a little bit more until it turned into a full transition plan and a purchase. And here we are. That's really good. So what I want to ask then, Mike, on your side, how did you know when the right time was to start thinking about this? You mentioned earlier that you want to start thinking about it earlier rather than later. How, how soon was this on your mind? Um, frankly, I think um, I probably 10, more than 10 years ago, um, I would say in the probably right around 2000, well, 2000, yeah, probably 10 years ago, 2010 was when I really started seriously thinking about what it would be like to sell the business. And that's about eight years before you actually sold it, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that was before Daniel came on board. Um, and certainly before we, our relationship became what it became, you know, several years later, but, um, it was, uh, it was always on my mind that I had to have a plan. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, having seen these other companies uh, go through this process, I realized that it's not something you can typically make up your mind in a short period of time and just proceed and have things go smoothly. (laughs) In fact, I don't think that ever happens. And um, I was also, I kind of had my age. I was thinking about what age I wanted to retire at. And and the closer I approach to traditional retirement age, then the more real it became to me um, for a variety of reasons. And um, I think that I was also starting to lose my edge a little bit, I would say, toward the end, because I feel like after I did it for 39 years, and um, as much as I loved it, and I never uh, uh, disliked my job, but I, but I was really growing weary, and I would say that uh, I wasn't sure to put it to put it simply. I don't know that I had another season left in me. Got it, got it. That makes total sense. Um, what were you looking for in the person to take it over? Did did you think it would be a person from within? Did you think you'd be selling it to someone on the outside? I think initially, I I I wasn't sure, but I I thought initially, and this was before we evolved with Daniel to the point we did, I frankly thought it might be somebody from outside. And and again, this interest that I had from a third party about a year and a half before we we sold it to Daniel, or I sold it to Daniel, the, um, that 
sort of spurred me on to really get into the weeds with this and figure out what the reality was and what made sense and what didn't. So I said, I would say my planning was probably about a year and a half okay. to, to really get a grip on this. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For people that are listening that are in a spot where they want to sell someday, what kinds of things need to be in order to have a business that's even sellable? Because there's a lot of businesses that aren't sellable. Yeah. Well, the first obvious one is that you have to have a good accounting system and you have to have a track record that you can look back on for three, at least three and preferably five years and say, here's, here's how this business has performed over this period of time. And like they always say in the stock market, past performance doesn't guarantee future performance, but in, in our businesses, and especially one that's 40 years old, you can see a trend. And, uh, and so you really need to be able to put those numbers down and be able to see every aspect of the business from a management standpoint and from a financial standpoint. Um, then you get to the point where you say, well, what methodology am I going to use to value this business? And I've seen companies go out to commercial real estate, not commercial real estate, commercial uh, companies that sell businesses brokers and, and brokers. Thank you. And that's an extremely expensive process for frankly, everybody and valuing a business that has these good uh, records is not that hard. There yeah. are a variety of uh, formulas to use and some are more complicated than others. But if you go through and do the work and use two or three of them, it's, it's, kind of funny, you kind of end up in the same place <laughs> in terms of getting a sense of what the value of the business is. No, that, that makes total sense. I, I think that that's really good that, you know, for people listening, if you are going to be selling your business, you, you got to get the numbers right. Um, there's little bits of experience I've had in the past with companies that have wanted to sell, but their books are a mess and, and they don't know if they're making money or losing money. And when, yeah. when that's where your business is, when you don't have any systems and processes, um, it's really tough because basically your business is worth whatever the inventory is. And because exactly. there's not a business, there's just, there's a, there's a warehouse full of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, to pile onto that, I mean, there's the, I don't know, emotional, spiritual, philosophical side of buying the business, which is, you know, we'll get into that all too about, you know, Mike Duvall talks about legacy and, and those are things that I can agree with. And we can talk about the, the industry and the relationships and all the things that are really important to us that are on this podcast about why we've stayed in this industry and why we're going to, but you know, if you're going to buy a business, you know, that's your, you know, that's the, the whipped cream on the pie basically. But the pie itself is, you know, the ability for me as a buyer to take, you know, okay, here's these financials. Here's my, here's my experience with the systems. Here's my experience with how this business works. Um, now I'm going to get my, you know, independent counsel, my independent CPA. We're going to reduce, we're going to review this information. Um, and we're going to make sure that we're doing this all above board. And, and if you don't have that information, you don't have the ability to understand it or translate it or get it to somebody who can professionally advise you on what you should do. You're kind of hurting. If you, if you're not doing that, then it's all a cocktail deal. And it's, um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a problem ultimately. So, I mean, even if you're not a buyer who had the luxury of, you know, working for who they bought the company from for several years before that happened, um, you know, all you really need is having, get that, get the accounting in, 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 in order. I mean, the one thing that John and Mike did that I honestly think is probably one of the best things that they probably ever did. And Mike can uh, let me know if he agrees or disagrees, but having, you know, a full-time accountant on, on pay for as long as you guys have, I mean, that's been a really big deal in terms of this. There's a lot of small companies that don't 
don't take that seriously. They got somebody who's untrained doing the books or they're, they're not seeing that as an expense that yeah. uh, is worth it. But I mean, it's been extremely valuable to me and I'm sure Mike and John as they ran the business. I would agree, Daniel. Absolutely. Um, you know, we did the books ourselves for a long time. <laughs> and then um, when you get to a certain size, it just makes a lot more sense to have somebody uh, crunching the number, not crunching the numbers, but keeping track of the numbers for you all the time. And uh, it, you can't make good decisions without good information. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to sell the business or run the business. <laughs> it's all the same. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So one thing I want to ask, there's so many places I want to go here, but so, so Mike, you've, you made this investment to get, to get tight books where you understand the ebb and the flow of, of the business and, and where you're at financially. So number one, there's gotta be some questions. If you're selling to someone internally, when is the right time to open up the transparency to them, if, uh, to show them this is actually how much money we make? And even if you don't buy the business, you're going to know how much money we make. So I want to ask about, about the transparency there. When do you show it? How do you go down that path? And then part two for Daniel, you're unloaded on, okay, here's the financials of the business. Where do you even go for counsel? So let's, let's maybe start with part one of the question, Mike. How do you decide on the discretion of showing that transparency? And Daniel, for you, what do you do when you have that information to figure out the right decision of going forward or not? Well, from my perspective, the first thing you need is at least a verbal commitment on the part of the buying party to say, I really am interested in this and this is a, this is a road I want to go down. And I will tell you, I have the benefit of having a, another party interested prior to that. And it, it, if you're going to really pursue this realistically, they have to see the numbers too. So you have to, uh, I've I am going to draw a blank on the type of agreement that I had uh, both parties sign. NDA. Non-disclosure, thank you. Um, and you, you make sure you get those documents signed and enforceable before you show any numbers to, to anybody, because this is a, any privately held business doesn't want to be under the, the magnifying glass of anybody who wants to look at it. So, yeah. so you, you get the NDA and then you release the documents and, and that's all you can do. I, I didn't worry about it too much because um, I knew we had a good business and I had a good history and I wasn't, yeah. there was nothing to hide. So um, and I'm frankly proud of it. So I, as long as I could be assured that it wasn't going to get released outside the bounds of the people I wanted to see it, then I was comfortable with it. Yeah, that's really good. Daniel, for you, what, what do you do when you have that information? Where do you even start to process it and figure out, is this, is this the right thing to pursue? I also want to uh, just kind of pile back onto what Mike was saying there about the NDA and, and you know the formality of all these things. Um, there might be some people listening to this podcast that might be considering a, an ownership transition. And even if you, even if you're the son of the owner or the daughter, or you've been in the company for 30 years, um, any real business deal re requires uh, legitimate due diligence. It requires your own personal counsel, it requires things like non-disclosure agreements, because these are what keeps everything serious above board. And there's enough room for the emotional side, the relationship side, the commitment to your soon to be business partners or um, whomever that it's not insulting to say, we need an NDA. I need to have this reviewed by uh, a CPA or I need to have this reviewed by my attorney. And anybody who's legitimate about getting into these types of agreements, these types, that, that, that helps save the relationship. Right? Yeah. That's how you do something like this. I mean, John and Mike and I are very close. Um, we've worked uh, closely together for a you know, pretty good amount of years now, but not, we, there's never a question about, you know, why would you go, you know, do you not trust me? Is it, why would you go have this looked at or why that's, that's how business gets done. 
right? And then John and Mike and I respected each other and we respect the process and it's a serious business, it's a serious game. So we need to be independently uh, counseled and you need to take those types of things seriously. So, I, you know, I don't care if it's your grandmama 30 years, like, you know, get, get the, get the, get the paperwork done and do those portions of it. And it's the best way to protect these types of agreements to make sure that everyone kind of knows what's going on and that everyone's above board about it. And, you know, you can deal with the relationship when you're having beers after you've inked the deal. But uh, uh, anyway, so the question to me is, you know, what do I do? Right. So I get that information. Um, I digest it. I start, you know, as John was, or pardon me, as Mike was saying, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a successful business. So, you know, I have enough business experience to be able to review of income statements and I'd been exposed to them for quite a while by that point. And, and, and so I knew a lot of that already, but, uh, you know, so the first things that I do is I get two things. I go, one, I get it's my own CPA. Um, and then two, I get my own attorney. Um, and, uh, I put, I get both of those people hired and then I have them start reviewing the documents and the contracts and stuff that's going to be coming through me to get their professional objective, you know, decisions on what I'm looking at and what I'm deciding to agree on. And the reason that that's so important is because what I was saying earlier, the emotional portion of that, the human portion of this, I, I love and respect John and Mike, and it's very easy for you to be, make bad decisions when that is, you know, part of your judgment. And it's not, it's just because, you know, you could not, you could miss something. You may not be paying as close attention as you should be. So having somebody who can look at this and say, Hey, have you, you know, are you paying attention to this? Maybe this should change. You should have a discussion about these items. Um, and it just helps make sure that everyone's making good decisions. And that's, that's why you don't want to go into it without counsel. But again, you definitely got to have somebody who can look at the financials with you that has the appropriate training to, to go through those things and be able to kind of see the things that could be pitfalls, the things that are good, the things you can expect. How do you project if the business will have the cash flow to afford the debt payments or whatever it is? You know, there's a lot of these things that you've got to think about. Um, and then, you know, certainly an attorney to help review any buy-sell agreements or contracts or, or things like that as they're going to proceed. So, yeah, that's really good. Um, so I'll ask this. I'm going to ask it to you, Daniel, but but Mike, you can jump in as well. So you, you see these documents and, and Mike has an idea of what he feels like the business is worth. You're reviewing it with your independent counsel. How do you and Mike work together to negotiate a fair value of the business? So, um, well, I mean, basically what I did is I took um, the valuation methods that Mike's already kind of talked at. I mean, obviously we're not going to, it's not a finance class, so we're not going to necessarily jump into all of that, but um, the CPA, for example, that uh, specializes in, um, you know, business accounting and things like that. Those are the folks that will help you, you know, Hey, here's the number that's on the table. Here's the income statements. Here's the tax returns. Here's this information for several years worth of information on this business. Help me understand if this is a good price or not. Um, and I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of how I did it. And, uh, with some discussion with them and, and with some good advice, uh, that's how I started uh, we started coming to an agreement on what the final price of the business is going to be. Um, yeah, and I would just say that um, depending on the structure of the business, whether it's a C corp, LLC, privately held, or I mean, uh, sole proprietor, um, there are always tax ramifications when this occurs. Yep. So I think, and what I'd seen in the past um, that I tried to avoid is I'd seen companies um, get caught up in the sale price of the, of the business and the structure of how the business, how the sale was going to be processed and paid. And they overlooked some of the tax impl implications. And sometimes, well, it is an emotional process. I, I won't deny it. Um, but I think people are overcome by their emotions sometimes. And sometimes 
they get caught up with this idea that I, they just want the highest price. And, and getting the highest price doesn't mean you always get the best deal, <laughs> which is counterintuitive. Um, so, so beyond just the, the value or the, there's all this emotional baggage that people bring with them to the table um, and good or bad, it just has to be, it has to be dealt with. And I've seen it cloud people's judgment in the, in, in, and I, I'm sure on some level it clouded my judgment, <laughs> but I don't feel that way. I feel like we made a really solid deal and uh, I think it was a win-win and um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. We'll get back to our conversation with Daniel Hammer and Mike Duvall in just one second. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast this season, you know that we've been talking about how your company can stay relevant in light of the COVID-19 crisis. Well, one of the things that we've mentioned most is that in our industry, most companies' websites are leaking money. And there's a lot of reasons for this that we've covered in past episodes. What I want to do today is give you a tip that if you can take care of this, you're going to go a long ways towards connecting with customers and engaging them towards buying your product. And this is it. When a customer is on your website... Everybody listening to this podcast needs to understand that there are two primary questions your customer wants answered. If your website can answer these questions, you have a great shot at winning. But if you don't answer both of these questions for your customer, they're probably going to hit the back button and end up buying elsewhere. Okay, so here's the first question. Every customer going to your website is asking, what options are going to work in my space? It sounds simple. But everyone going to your website has a space and they don't know what's going to work in it. Very often they get confused on manufacturers' web pages by what's a zero clearance fireplace, what's an insert. They ultimately don't know. So here's tip number one for your website. Don't arrange your fireplaces in terms of their industry category. Zero clearance, insert, gas log set. Those things don't mean anything to customers. Instead, arrange your fireplaces based on the situation they're applicable to. So for instance, you could have a section called blank wall. And any fireplaces that could potentially go on a blank wall can be put there. Open fireplace, freestanding stove, and use pictures to demonstrate. This will go so far towards making it easy for your customer. All right, question number two that every customer wants to know when they're on your website, what's it going to cost? Now, most companies in our industry don't put pricing, and if they do, they put pricing for the unit only. Both of those are a huge mistake because our products require vent pipe and installation, framing, permitting, whatever. You have to find a way to give an accurate price range to customers when they're on your website. Now, people get worried about this, and they think about, what about unknowns? What about different situations? And I get it. There's complexity there, but it doesn't change the fact that your customers want to know. If I'm shopping for a car, and I go to a manufacturer's website to try to find a model that works for me, if there's no pricing, I'm not sticking around. I'm hitting the back button. Your customers are the same. So today's simple tip to make your website relevant to your customers is answer the two fundamental questions. Which options are going to work in my space and how much is it going to cost? And if you need help doing these exact same two things, you have to check out 
Wi-Fi. We've talked about this on the podcast before. This is a sales system I've been working on for the last three years. And ultimately, this is going to show customers which options will work for them, provide them instant estimate ranges, along with automated follow-up to nurture them through every stage of the sales funnel. To take advantage of this in your company, you need to go to wifire.com. That's W-H-Y-F-I-R-E.com. I want to talk a little bit about just like financial terminology. So, so I'd, I'd love your guys' opinion on this. So, it seems like uh, with a lot of businesses, you know, you you look at the books, and and obviously there's a huge difference between top line and bottom line. Mike, like you just said, just because the the top line price of the business is really good doesn't mean because of tax implications and everything else that there's going to be the same amount of bottom line coming home to you. So right. it's important to think about this stuff, but you know. A lot of business transactions, as I understand it, are based on a multiplier of EBITDA. And is that is that a starting point of where of where you guys went? Is is just a multiplier of what the EBITDA was? That's certainly one of the formulas we used, um, uh, but it wasn't the only one. Um, and you know, you could even do uh, a percentage of sales as a as a methodology when you're in in this type of business when. That's an easy way to do it. There's there's a lot of different ways, but yeah, we used EBITDA for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think I think it, it it can be. This is this is overly simplifying it, but it's a way to at least start the conversation. Is to think about if you can look at the the EBITDA of a company and see you know what that bottom line number is, and if there's a multiplier on it, whether it's two or three or five or whatever, you yeah. know that that starts to tell you as the as the buyer the number of years on the multiplier is, you know, how many years this thing's going to essentially go with no profit before the business becomes mine. If things stay the same, right. that's not, that's oversimplifying the conversation, but, but I think that that's a good way to start thinking about taking on this business. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So I want to ask you then, Mike, how did you decide on Daniel as you were approached by somebody else, you know, before, you'd started discussions with him. How, how did you decide on him to be the one you sold the business to? Well, um, you know, there's this saying that familiarity breeds contempt, but <laughs> that's not what's happened in this case. Um, we, um, frankly, um, the history that I have with Daniel um, really made it simple for me to make that decision. I guess I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, primarily because of the legacy aspect of the business. I didn't have confidence that the, the, the other party or necessarily any other party could carry on in the tradition, for lack of a better term, that uh, we set at Sutter Home and Hearth. And Daniel had been with us long enough and been a general manager for long enough to, um, and he exemplified the things that we believed in um, how to run a business and how to treat your customers and how to treat your employees. And uh, you, you can't, a lot of people can come into a business and not have that. And I didn't want the reputation that we built over 40 years to get, um, I, I won't say ruined, but um, I, you know, to be devalued in any yeah. way. And I knew by bringing Daniel to the party that, he would sustain this and, and even make it better, grow it, because uh, he's smart. He's obviously younger, and he's uh, got a lot of good things to, to good ideas. And I think that, you know, the future is bright. So, um, and I really like that we're able to sustain 
the brand in the market after all these years. Yeah, I'm with you. And I mean, just from my experience, knowing Daniel, uh, Daniel, you are a meticulous thinker. I mean, you, you really have an eye for details and yeah, you, you have what you need to take over a business and run with it. Um, I want to ask you though, Daniel, as you, as you guys figure out this evaluation and everything, and you're looking at, you know, taking a leap, buying a business, and that's a, that's a big change. What needed to be in place for you to feel good about taking it on? Well, I want to take a second and obviously, um, you know, I don't know, and Tim, maybe uh, you can get on board with me on this here. Obviously, Mike, I appreciate all of that that you said. And, um, uh, and the reason it's just, I know it's true. And, and, it, and uh, it just means a lot to me because I'm the kind of person and, and Tim's in my generation in this industry that, you know, I think we're the kind of guys that are just happy to be standing in a room with a guy like you, Mike. And I, you know, for, for me to hear positive things like that about, uh, me and what you saw me to, to, to be the person that's going to be able to take on this challenge is it means a lot. And, uh, I'm normally, you know, the person that, uh, I kind of get a reputation sometimes for being uh, fairly severe with those that, uh, work for me, <laughs> now, you know, in terms of being challenging and making sure that, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'm being a little hard on them in terms of the, the how I'm going to push them to get the things that I want, but I don't think people realize that I'm, uh, I'm only talking to them to probably at, at half of the tone that I'm talking to myself in my own head. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, thanks, thanks for, thanks for all that, Mike. I mean, we've discussed that before, but every time I, I hear you talk about things like that, that really means a lot to me and I appreciate it. And I hope that I know that I won't uh, let that down. Um, but uh, again, you know, being in this industry and being exposed to Mike and, other folks that are within your generation and have done the things you guys have done. Again, I'm just grateful to be in the same room. <laughs> so, um, and, and it's yeah, nice. To I'm know with you. We're, yeah. It's nice to know that we're, uh, we're starting to kind of get to the point where we won't be in the same room anymore. We'll be the ones that somebody else will be saying that to us. Maybe. So, That's right. Yeah. Um, so anyways, you know, how do I make that decision? Uh, well, uh, yeah. And as you're, as you're looking at it, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to buy the business, but like what, what needs to be in place? Like you know, do you need Mike to stay around? Do you need like, I mean, how do you get the money for it? Like what, what needs to be in place for you to be able to actually do this? I use the analogy of uh, becoming a parent often, actually. It's one of those things, like I remember when I first bought the business, people would ask, oh, how's it going? And I'd say, you know, you, you remember when you first had your first kid and somebody would say, oh, how's it going? And you, you know, and you're trying to explain to them like how many highs and lows and all these things that are coming with it. It's, it's amazing and it's terrible all at the same time. Yeah, so Jim Gaffigan um, says, like, you know, they say, what's it like having uh, four kids? And he says, well, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, I think for me what it was was uh, uh, making peace with whether I wanted to make this commitment, right? And uh, John and Mike helped uh, uh, help me get to the point where I could see that you could be the owner of a business and you could have, um, you could take the risk of being someone who stands on principle and who works really hard to try to have a business that stands by its customers, stands by its employees, stands by quality, and isn't just trying to grab every buck that shows up. It's trying to make good, conscious decisions, um, and 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 at the same time being tight on management, tight on procedures, and trying to make you know have a few bucks left over at the end of the year. Um, and before I got that. I guess that training and that understanding, it was, you know, hard. It would have been hard for me to say, I want to, I want to have that kind of stress and I want to have that kind of difficult. I want to have that kind of, that kind of commitment. And, um, that was the, the things that I, 
the first, you know, a couple of years before we actually made the transaction, um, you know, we were talking about it and it was certainly something on the radar. And that was the thing that I was thinking about the whole time is like, do I really want to, do I want this job? And, and am I going to be able to do this job correctly? You know, do I have what it takes to be a good leader to uh, be committed to this company, you know, 24 hours a day and, and try to make the best decisions for the company prior to making the decisions that would best affect me, you know, like, and John and Mike taught me that that's totally possible. You know, I, I feel like in their history, I, you know, uh, I feel like every decision I've ever seen them make, the first thing they thought about what's best for this company and knowing that in the end, that decision will be good for them. But the first thing that's got to be taken care of is what's best for the enterprise and, um, uh, and getting comfortable with being able to know that, you know, you, you've got what it takes to be able to, to do that and that you're, that the stress is going to be worth it. So getting over that kind of emotional hurdle, you know, getting over that commitment hurdle, um, that, that was the first thing that I had to do was to make sure that I was ready for this job. Um, yeah. and then after that, I mean, the rest of that's just paperwork, honestly, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, is the business profitable? Is it going to be worth the, the money that's being asked to buy it? Um, what kind of systems do we have in place? Things that I already understood, you know, how, so how are we going to finance this? You know, there's, uh, several different options that are available through that. We were, uh, started originally with the SBA and then, um, we decided to go a different direction just because of the way that the SBA was, uh, going to be difficult to kind of deal with in a transit transaction like that. Um, and you know, again, if you can, you can trim up your beard and have a haircut and look nice, you can roll into any bank. And have a good and have a good pedigree, and if you got a good business that you're trying to buy, and you've got you know the chops to basically be the person to buy that business, they'll fund you. You'll figure out a way to do it. But you know, it's not a hard process. It's really just about being someone who's able to. Hey, we need these things. You need to fill this out. You need to be here at this time. If you can do those things, and you have the experience beforehand, you know, doing the funding side of it, that's not a, a super difficult thing either. It's just that the bank's got to see this business is valuable. This person who's going to buy it's not going to fly it right into a mountain as soon as you yeah. take over. Um, uh, but, you know, for me, honestly, the hardest thing, and I think the most important thing is, is really more of the emotional girding of like saying, are you ready to do this job? Can you take care of this company the way that the people that you were buying it from has done for the last 40 years? Can you carry, can you continue the legacy? And will you make enough doing it to make it that all worth it? Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, once I was, once the answers to that was yes for me, then the rest of it was like, okay, Let's get some paperwork done, guys. Wow. So what I want to ask then is you buy this business. What what kind of an agreement did you guys make as far as, Mike, you staying on to, to kind of oversee the transition and help smooth that out? Um, well, first of all, I would say that um, from my perspective, once we green-lighted this whole process and Daniel was all in and we had – pretty much all the ducks lined up. Um, I was surprised uh, at how much time and energy I spent getting this deal done. I'll bet. And, and it's a lot of, um, and probably uh, some of the, some of the strain certainly was emotional, but when you have a company our size and maybe any company, I don't know. Um, and you have employees and you have this transition occurring the last thing you want to do is create uh, a tidal wave where uh, at least from my perspective, and especially again, going back to the legacy idea and the fact that you want things to continue and you have good, you have a fair number of really good employees that you want to keep around. So there's this whole sense of, well, how soon does the word get out and who do we tell and how do we tell that became a real 
big part of this for me. And frankly, um, the pressure to get it done was only coming from one person, and that was me. Mm. <laughs> and and so I kind of felt that burden for a good six months. And and at the end, um, it didn't. It never goes exactly how you want it to go. And um, I would say, um, and this is in retrospect now, I, I don't harbor any of this. I just want to, I'm just explaining yeah. what can happen. Um, that uh, I really didn't get to say a goodbye properly to everybody. Um, and I feel kind of bad about that. But I'm that, that having said that, it's well, well overcome by how it worked out and who's running the show now. And I think um, initially in answer to your question, Daniel, um, I, I, I told him what my drop dead date was. And um, fortunately my minority shareholder business partner uh, wasn't ready to leave when I was. And, and so he decided to stay on as a contract employee for another year. So oh, perfect. that took a lot of pressure off everybody. I think, wouldn't you say so, Daniel? Oh yeah. Um, that was, I think at the, uh, in retrospect, uh, the, I know now how valuable that was and not to say that, you know, John, uh, John is valuable in any uh, application. So having him at all, I was grateful to have it, but, um, it, it would have been pretty easy at the time of the transition for me to have, if John wouldn't have been doing that to say, oh, okay, that's probably fine. We'll be all right. But I think that first year would have been really a lot more difficult had he not been here to help make that transition smoother because there was a lot of systems that, process through him and there's all this experience and um and honestly mike and i had been working pretty hard before that transition went to where i was absorbing more of what mike was doing um because we knew that john was going to be spending at least another year you know working the business um and uh you know it was it was a big deal um and you know again back to that whole do your paperwork thing i mean we actually had a signed employment agreement too that was part of this transition these transitional documents you know like this is what john's going to do this is how long he's going to work this will be his compensation and then he'll now be you know working for me as opposed to the other way around and um, but yeah it was a, that was a really valuable part of, of, of making anything like this work because even if you've got all this experience in the industry um or you got all this experience in the business you know certainly if you're going you know you're doing what i did which is john and mike ran the company for 40 you know well mike for 40 years and john 35 ish years or so um and then it's going down to just one person you know you're losing you're losing 40, 80 hours of management time a yeah. week right there immediately so um having somebody who can help kind of make that transition is a really critical path for that plus i would say that um i agreed that I would become, I would be available. Certainly, it wasn't like I was going to. He didn't just vanish. That's true. <laughs> and and we had had a few conversations. As I suspected, Daniel's com- uh, competency uh, revealed that he didn't really need me that much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, at, you know, in retrospect, again, I would just say it all worked out. Yeah. Well, I think it's really special what you guys did. This is something that that businesses in our industry dream of. And I think a problem right now is that many businesses in our industry uh, were started in the 70s and 80s by good people, entrepreneurs that were smart, they knew how to work hard, and they saw an opportunity. And they built a business by putting their nose to the crying stone every single day. And you can build a successful business doing that, and you can actually make a lot of money doing that. The problem is that, that when you're a treadmill operator like that, 
you can't sell the business because if you get off the treadmill, the business stops working. It stops, right. And, and I think that there, there's something to be said for thinking about the business intentionally before you have to, to start putting these things in place to where this really could start, you know, think about how could this business operate without me? How can I start building towards that? Even if right now you're listening and you're, you're 30 years old, 40 years old owning a business, how could I, how could this business work without me? If I got hit by a bus tomorrow, how could I put things in place? And ultimately that's the way that you, that you grow this thing. Right. That's right. And fortunately we were a large enough company to have enough working parts that we didn't rely on a single individual. So that's good. Yeah. Right. You need, you need a lot of gears working uh, to keep it all running. So one question I have is Mike, how long did it take from when you first started talking with Daniel to when the deal was done and you were out? Um, well, that's a little nebulous in terms of the nature of our conversation regarding this, but I would say, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong on this, Daniel, but to the best of my memory, I would say that probably the process was about a year. Yeah, I'd say that, uh, I mean, the, the, the real process was about it. It was actually, let's say two, because um, there was that, you know, I'd say about 2015 or so. Um, so I bought the company in 2018. I think, you know, I took over as general manager in 2013. Um, at that time, there was some conversation about equity partnership, but not a lot. It was just, you know, little conversations here and there. And then I think uh, once we got into a couple of years later, then it started kind of getting like more frequent. We we're having these conversations and how's this, you know, this is what we're thinking about. And then I'd say in um, late 2016, somewhere in that area is when it really got to like, hey, we're going to start doing this. You should start investigating funding options for how we're going to try to organize this deal. Because um, I remember we went and talked to uh, the folks at the bank um, and then we got everything kind of all of our ducks in a row or I did. And then a year later is when we really started saying, okay, now we're going to do this. And we went back to the bank and the bank had changed a lot of regulatory things and and things that became a problem basically for us to utilize that, that option. So I'd say it was about it. Yeah. I'd say it was about it probably a year and a half, maybe, maybe two years is what I think ultimately, but the real business took about a year. I think that's about it. And the real, I mean, the hammer went down, when the hammer went down, so to speak, it was a six month process. Yeah. 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 So this, this doesn't happen overnight. No. Yeah. I want to ask this, Daniel. So every business owner knows that there's a difference between your name being on the back of the check and the front of the check. What was it like for you to make that transition? It's an interesting question. I, um, I've worked for, I've worked directly for, people in, you know, uh, Mike and John's shoes, most of my career, you know, I've never, I've never really been, I've been pretty comfortable being a second in command to an owner of a company for quite a while. Um, so understanding what they go through and supporting them and then supporting the business is something I'm, I'm used to that. I'm used to that work. And, and, but there's something about it that is, um, much different, even though it's important for you to have that level of training and perspective on the business before you get to the position where you buy it. But I will tell you the day, July 1st, 2018, right. Where I actually was now the owner just signed as president the day before the paperwork for the full transition and all of the, the, the buy, sell and the stock redemption and all these other things. Um, it is, uh, it's completely different feeling than something that I would have the day before been able to articulate. Yeah. Um, and it actually made me, um, 
I started working more hours almost immediately. Not that I haven't been a hard worker before. I started to have different ways of looking at everything. Um, not that I haven't always been concerned about us being profitable or about us making sure that we're making good decisions when it comes to supporting customers or staff or logistics or whatever, but it was just different. Yep. Um, and uh, it just the, the level of responsibility uh, changes and, and there's, uh, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's actually, it's a good thing. And, uh, it, it's, it, but it's hard to explain in terms of what, what exactly that transition is, but it definitely is. It, it's, 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 it's disquieting. You know, you realize that, you know, this is all, um, these decisions, it's not like every day you sit there and think everything's like revolving around me, but, um, and, and if I make one false move, everything's going to fall apart. Although sometimes you think that way, um, you know, I don't know if you know, Jeff Reynolds, who's the owner of home fires down yeah. in Salem, but he's a, he's a, a relatively new business owner. Like I am, although he has a few more years under his belt than I do. And him and I joked about that at an event we were both at. And he like looked at me, he goes, do you ever once in a while just think that we just, whatever decision you just made, is just going to bring the whole thing crashing down. And I'm like, Oh yeah, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, that's kind of a long rambling answer, but I guess that's the best I can I can tell you about that. Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely will say that it's, it's, it's made me feel better about being here. It's made me feel more committed to the legacy and to the folks that work here and to what we're trying to do. And I'm glad that that's the result. I mean, it's not that I didn't expect that, but it's, um, uh, it feels good that that's, that that's the way I reacted as opposed to being overwhelmed or, bitter or upset about how much more work I have to do, I'm glad to do it. So definitely. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a rite of passage. When, once you go through it, uh, you, you don't go back. You, life, life looks differently and, and you're going to, your perspective is never going to go back to the way that it was. Well, when you own the business, if you have any fear of failure, it is much different as an owner than it is as an employee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you there for sure. What I want to ask you guys last, this is a little bit of a curveball, but Mike, you mentioned this earlier. You talked about the dealer group. I want to ask you, why did you start that and what did it mean to you over the years? Oh, well, um, I wish I could take credit for it, but it was actually uh, initiated by a fellow who owned Olympia Stone Fireplace. He entertained the idea and talked to me and he talked to um, folks in uh, Eugene at Midgley's and at, uh, to Tim at Home Fire. And this little group of four started this Northwest dealer group for lack of a better name. And um, at first it was pretty rocky. We got together, um, we didn't really have much commonality in terms of the way we were doing our running our businesses other than that we were in the same business yeah. <laughs> over the years, as it evolved, it became an extremely valuable tool for all of us. Um, we learned a lot from each other and taught each other a lot and uh, certainly helped uh, sort of home focus on some of the things that were mo- most important when it came to um, having, you know, good books and being able to recognize when you were doing things right and when you, when things were looking a little askew and, uh, and also just great ideas for, for uh, improving your profitability. And um, yeah, I mean, it really just bred its own success, I guess. And, and once we were into it, it became uh, an invaluable tool for all of us and it grew a little bit. We added some people over the years um, and it was always a pretty special group. 
Well, that's really cool. I think that that intentionality says something. You know, when you when you surround yourself with people where you're moving in the same direction, you're open to feedback, and you're and you're ready to learn. Uh, it's amazing how you stumble upon success when you set yourself up that way. That's right. That's a good point. And you know, I would just I keep thinking about this as we've been talking. My wife has a saying she likes to remind me of: hope is not a strategy. <laughs> Truth. There's truth there. Yep. Well, guys, this has been awesome. And and I'm telling you, there is so much value in this conversation because the topic of transitioning your business to the next generation, transitioning your business to sell to an outside party, whatever the situation is, there are businesses all over the country that are in this same boat. And what you guys just laid out is the ideal situation. So I appreciate your time being here, Mike. It's awesome seeing the legacy that you've created. And Daniel, it's just amazing to be a friend of yours that can just watch you take this and run with it. So thank you guys for your time. We appreciate you coming on the show. Tim, it's great to finally meet you and uh, maybe we'll meet in person one day. Yeah. Once this, uh, once this COVID crisis is over, we'll have to make that happen. Yeah. You bet. All Thanks, right. Tim. Take care. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Mike Duvall and Daniel Hammer. I'm telling you, this is special. And the timing could not be any more perfect. We're in the midst of the COVID crisis, and everyone's trying to reevaluate their value proposition. But now's the time to dive deep on investing in the systems and processes that your business has so that you can hit the ground running on the backside of this thing. If your workforce was shut down or forced to reduce their hours, now's the time to do a virtual reset on your company as you bring them back up to full speed. You can set a new trajectory for the way that you do business. Now, one thing I want to pick up on that Mike talked about was that idea of the dealer group. This is so critical to find like-minded people who can sharpen you and make you better. I'm telling you, I've got a group of people like this in my life, and it has absolutely changed the way that I live. If you take nothing away from this interview, take away the fact that you need to find other people to help you get better and meet with them regularly and intentionally. You know, they say that most people in life are a combination of the people they hang out with and the books that they read. If you surround yourself with intentional people who are trying to make themselves and their businesses better, you got a better chance of winning. Now, one of the ways that you can do this is in the FireTime network. We've talked about this for a while now on the podcast, but if you go to the FireTimeNetwork.com, you can join essentially a free social media platform for the hearth industry. But this is full of hundreds of dealers, distributors, and manufacturers who want to get better. There's all kinds of ways to connect with like-minded people who can ultimately help you grow your business. So you need to go to the FireTime network.com and sign up to start taking advantage of that. Now, one more thing that I want to talk about is the format of the rest of this season. So the first half of this season has been regular interviews with guests, but I'm really excited about the second half because the second half of season four of this podcast is going to be a deep dive on the different departments of a hearth company. This idea is actually what even started the Firetime Network. Grant Falco and myself were on an airplane to Minneapolis, and we had like five hours together, and we just started brainstorming the way that we've grown our businesses and the tools that we've used to do it. And what we came out with was a series of tools based on the eight departments of a hearth company. I cannot wait for this. It's going to be super, super 
practical. And especially for businesses that are really trying to reestablish themselves on the back end of this crisis, I know this is going to be helpful. With that is going to come questions. And as always, we're going to end this season with a question and answer episode. So make sure to write in your questions to tim at itsfiretime.com. That's tim at itsfiretime.com. Now, before we go, I want to remind you guys about Patreon. If this podcast has been a blessing for you and helped you grow your business and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash itsfiretime. That's patreon.com slash itsfiretime. There's also a link in the show notes. But What we want to do with this podcast is we want the content to become better and better and better. And in order to do that, we need to outsource some of the administrative duties of the podcast. And so we're really thankful for the people and the companies that have jumped on to support. In fact, I want to give a shout out to a few of them right now. Pete Schoenfeld, former guest of this podcast last season. Danny Kaler out of Smoky Stoves in Medford, Oregon, and William Spencer out of Portland. Guys, it means the world that you are supporting this, and we appreciate every penny. So with that in mind, guys, I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. I know that there's going to be a lot to think about with this conversation, but now more than ever, it's more important to think about the way that we're running our businesses. And you may not think of yourself as someone who's going to own a business one day, but I'm telling you, there's opportunity out there. There are people all over the place that are looking to sell their business. On the other end, if you're older, you feel like it's too late, I can't do it. Well, it won't happen overnight. But I'm telling you, if you can go a couple years tightening up the systems and processes in your business, chances are you can sell that business to someone for a profit and ultimately they can continue your legacy. So I know that this has been a long episode and I actually thought about breaking it into a two-parter, but I felt like the conversation was important enough and cohesive enough that we needed to keep it as one solid unit. So as always, I appreciate you listening to this podcast and I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. I'm all into buying.